Praise the Lord for our musicians. Thank you. And uh, it helps if you know the words of the song. You can kind of sing along as they're playing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping. He is with me to the end. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're desiring to worship you. We're giving you our praise, our money, our attention, all that we are. Now as we open the word, Lord, we're giving you the ability to write on our hearts, our minds, change our habits, give us encouragement, perhaps challenge us. All that you are, we humble ourselves too. And now, Lord, bless us with a mixture of law and grace, and may we go forward to see you, to praise you, to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If we could bring those slides up. I want to do a little bit with last week. Last week, I talked with you about Judy Waddell. This is her son, Brett. When he was six years old, uh, back in the 1970s, <clears throat> he, uh, his mom determined he wasn't, it wasn't quite right time for him to go to school. And she became one of the first to stand up against uh, the compulsory school laws in the state of Michigan. Uh, it wasn't like she wasn't going to do anything to develop his mind in person, but she had read the spirit of prophecy and felt like especially it was applicable to him. And so she defied the law of the land because she believed there was an appropriate exception that needed to be made and there was inspiration that was guiding it. Now, I want to show you, she was just a kid when she did these things. And let's zoom in just a little bit here. Here she is back when she's attending Andrews University. Now, I want you to think of her as a young single mother uh, attempting to do what she believed was best based on the inspiration of the spirit of prophecy. And I want you to imagine her being arrested, taken down to the police station, booked for violating the truancy laws or being a truant parent, truant, having a truant student. She is uh, the beginning of bumping into the idea of homeschool in the state of Michigan. And you can't read this, but it's the article I quoted from last week that uh, Michigan Supreme Court refused to hear it. So that means the appeal that she had was the final word and it was denied. Now, she didn't get us all the way, but she got us into what football fans called the red zone, which she got us within 20 yards of the end zone of a score. Uh, the score would come by the Dijongs who lived on Mackinac Island. It would take years and years, and looking back on it, they would say that all of the headache and all the heartache and all the misunderstanding was worth it. What I want you to understand is something I said last week, is that if you're sacrificing now for something, somebody else will succeed based on it. And if you're succeeding right now, it's because somebody else has gone before you and sacrificed. And sometimes you're fortunate enough to be a part of the full cycle where you get to go through the sacrifice and experience the success. Now, why does this matter? Because today, when you hear the words homeschool, you think, ah, oh, alternative form of education. But 50 years ago, it was scorned, doubted, derided. It was substandard. I'm here to tell you today, I've never met any kids that were homeschooled and it was done well where they don't have the full spectrum of intelligence that uh, I would want for my own children. And for a little bit, my wife and I did that with our last few. But what I want you to see is that change is hard. Innovation is misunderstood. Trying to bring things back into the narrow way is resisted. We get comfortable with where we're at. And then we're stuck. But homeschooling today is a respectable alternative for those who do it well, but it came at a price. Now, I want to thank our principal for sending this picture over. Um, this is our kids in one of their most recent uh, mini courses. And they weren't able to be working on the construction class they were in, which is building a chicken coop. And I want to thank those that are working with them doing that. So our associate pastor, Pastor Page, and our principal worked together 
to show them how to actually mix mortar and do some brickwork. And I'm thankful for the, the uh, blacksmithing that's going on and the Bible studies that are being taught, actually teaching the kids how to give Bible studies. And then also there's the mini immersion program that's going on where the kids were learning how to take vitals the other day. We had an immersion program here and now we're teaching it to our young people. And I wanna tell you, let's empower our kids because we're so close to this vortex of the whirlpool to suck us down that unless we put on the armor of God and fight back, we're going down the drain. And I don't want to go down the drain. And the truth of the matter is, is that as we empower our kids not to live virtual lives, but to live actual uh, engagements with real people and real challenges, uh, they are happier, more confident, more competent, and they'll have better lives. Now, I've entitled this message this morning, The Parent, the Prophet, and the Parents, How to Escape the Tragic Comedy. I didn't know that such a genre existed as tragic comedy, and the whole idea of comedy and tragedy comes from the Greeks, these masks, they represent it. But I really believe that we're, we are potentially caught in a tragic comedy, and we want to know how to escape it. So how do those tragic comedies work? Well, you know, the story starts off sad and ends up funny. I'd like to suggest to you, in our great controversy view of life, this is the tragic comedy. That the devil wants us to deviate from the narrow way. He, doesn't, he wants us to turn to the left or to the right, to this data set or that data set, this experience base or that experience base. He wants us not to live by faith, but to choose our own way. And in the process of choosing our own way, start a slow-moving tragedy. And in the process of avoiding the blessed light that shines on the narrow way, we find ourselves in this unfolding catastrophe when we deviate from that path. And then the final act is a hellish comedy where he gets to watch. In this case, let's put it in the parenting perspective. He gets to have the last laugh as he sees our kids, whom we've invested our life to win, snatched out of our hands and losing their eternal life. Yes, I think that's the tragic comedy that the devil is hoping transpires. And this morning, I'd like to suggest to you that none of our children and none of our homes need to be caught up in this tragic comedy. But parenting has its pitfalls. And you might want to be careful because you're entering at your own risk. You've never had an experience quite like this. Marriage is close. But in parenting, you put your heart on the outside. And the kids get to step all over it at times and embarrass you and do all kinds of other things that you could never imagine they could find a way in their heart, mind, or activities to do. Now, I just want to say at the beginning of this sermon, thank you for those slides. They can go down now. Um, I just want to say at the beginning of this sermon how much I've enjoyed my own parenting journey. My oldest is 33. My youngest is 23. Three boys, then a girl. And so many things I learned about myself and still, I still am in regards to working with these, uh, these children that have come from my wife's womb and partner, she and I partnering together have tried to raise up to adulthood. And I hear that grandparenting's a pretty nice journey too. I haven't gotten there yet. But I also hear there's some amazing things that happen with grandparenting where people become different people. Um, talking with people, you know, uh, my age that actually have children and working and watching my own grandparents, it appears that some of these very structured, disciplined people, when they get grandkids, just become somebody else. And, and the original parents of the kids wonder, what, what, what just happened there? I mean, I never would have gotten away with that. But parenting is a wonderful journey. I also want to say thank you to my own parents. Uh, my mother's the only one I still have left. But you know, occasionally I'll share some of the struggles that went on in my home, but I had a very good home. Most of who I am today was shaped by the time I got to the church school. What the church school did was develop and bless me in the milieu and the environment and the ambiance of uh, Christ, the teachings of what are true. And I just want to say thank you to my mom, and I want to have gratitude for my father, who's now deceased. But this thing of parenting has been a wonderful journey, and what a great thing to belong to a family. I saw a cartoon the other day, and I, I want to jump in right like this. This cartoon was comparing then and now. 
And in one cartoon, they had kind of the era I grew up in, and the mother had the child by the ear. You know, he hadn't listened to her call to come in, so she had to go out and find him. And the child was held by the ear by the mother, and, and she's not being particularly gentle, and she's bringing him towards the, the, the stoop on the house, and she's saying, I told you it's time to come inside. Now you fast forward to today, and you have a similar looking mother with a similar aged child, and she's dragging the child out of the house, and she's saying, I thought I told you it was time to go outside. We're living in an age of virtual living and amusements, and they're hurting our kids. And the devil who studied us for 6,000 years has figured out that the brain, the mind, the person is the uh, fort to be captured, and he's figured out that he can actually provide a substitute that will create some form of besetting sin or addiction and actually rob us of the engagements with real life. Who would have thought that virtual living could be deemed more exciting than actual living? In preparing for this message, I also saw a cartoon where a mother was talking to a son in front of a computer screen and she was saying, don't you think it'd be better to go outside? And he said, yes, mom, could we get an extension cord and I can take my computer outside and sit on the porch. Now, if these things were not a little bit funny, they'd be only tragic. And this morning, I want to go on a journey. 2,252 times in the database for the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy, you can find the word amusement. And interestingly enough, some of the things that are to be a part of good amusement is to be interaction between parents and children. Life is not supposed to be sad and dour. Life is not supposed to only be heavy. There's actually supposed to be some beautiful things that happen. And those should happen between the generations and the parents. But we're living in an age of indulgement, indulgence where amusement is the goal. And I was disappointed the other day as I was talking with some of the leaders at the church school. And I want to say thank you to our church school teachers and all the prayerful and wonderful efforts they're making to help create a culture, not just pass on information. Uh, but I was talking with some leaders, and they were referring to an individual in our community, a, a, an important person with children. And uh, there was commentary in regards to the video games. Well, you know, I'm not so old, but that I understand video games. They were new when I was young. And I can remember staying up till three or four o'clock in the morning playing with those nascent, you know, those very infantile versions of what have become, you know, virtual reality and so engaging. But I'm here to tell you, uh, it's not good for our young people to be living virtual lives and allowing, the parents allowing them to become addicted to things that will rob them of mental strength, emotional strength, and stick to -itiveness. So this morning as we start this journey, I want you to know that innovation is hard. Reform is hard. We are on a journey where everybody's starting to realize we need it. I was watching a news commentator yesterday evening before sundown, and I was alarmed at what I heard them saying. They were starting to discuss the news in the terms of religion and evil. And what I'm concerned about is that the sun is setting and even the secularists are starting to recognize this is a battle of grave moral implications and we might find ourselves flat-footed without that army of youth ready to go because we've not worked together as church, school, and families to make sure our children are weaponized to fight back at this present darkness. And so this morning, this is the second in a series of sermons on innovation and reform in education. Last week was the prophet and the professor. This week is the prophet and the parent. And I'm completely convinced unless we come back to believing the same things, reading the same source books, praying together with and for each other, we are going to lose a battle we could win and there will be eternal casualties that need not be reckoned in the ranks of hell. Prisoners, victims, sometimes of poor parenting. When we think about the life of Nadab and Abihu, take your Bibles if you would and open them up to the book of Leviticus. When we think about the life of Nadab and Abihu, you need to understand a few things. Leviticus chapter 10. 
You need to understand that in the nation of Israel, there were only two people who wielded more influence than they. And their names were Moses and Aaron, uncle and father. And you need to understand that for seven days, the nation watched the consecration of the sanctuary and of its ministers, seven days. We might consider a two-hour dedicatory process a long experience, but God was in a work of reform, and God was in a work of establishing a people. You need to understand when we look at Nadab and Abihu that they had been on the mountain with the 70 elders and they had seen a measure of the glory of God. You need to understand as we look at these two men, full-grown men, that they were being parented by a man who did not teach them discipline and respect for authority. You need to know the spirit of prophecy will refer to their father as the pliant Aaron. And you need to remember that in the book of Exodus, thousands died because he caved into the pressure to take their jewelry. And according to the rendition he gave to his younger brother Moses, he threw it in the fire and voila, here it is, a calf. What else could we do but worship? It's a miracle. You need to remember these things. And unfortunately, you need to know that the God who devoured them with holy fire as they came in drunk and took strange fire, that this God is the most patient, kind, and relenting God there is. So things were pretty off for us to have this kind of encounter. When we come down to verse 5, their cousins have been called to carry them out of the camp. Actually, it's their dad's cousins. Verse 5, so they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his son, sons Eliezer and Ithamar, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought. God ends the narrative through the prophet Moses with an admonition to not drink intoxicating liquor. And by the way, if you read from page 359 up to about page 363, there's only four pages on this in the Patriarchs and Prophets. The prophet will tell us that that admonition is for all of us and she will go quickly to Peter's remembrance that we are a nation of priests and kings unto God. So anybody listening to me here this morning or watching online, liquor is completely forbid. Intoxicating drinks, completely forbid. And two men, if they hadn't been drunk, wouldn't be dead. But Moses tells his brother, you are not to mourn in front of these people. This was something that sets up a deadly understanding of casualness in regards to the laws of light and life and liberty and holiness and distinction. Now, I'm not going to spend any more time there this morning except to say to you, when God steps in like this, it's a very, very serious offense. And even if only 10 sentences or 10 lines are there for us, there's a lot more that ought to be contemplated in regards to keeping the holy separate from the common. Now, this morning, if you'd like to avoid the tragic comedy that the devil's trying to set up, or if you think you're in it right now, take hope. I'm going to bring up seven things that I think scripturally are indisputable in regards to the culture of our children, which need to be lived and taught at home, which need to be lived and taught at school, and which need to be lived and taught in the church. And when it's all said and done, if you look at one of them and say, wow, I think I really fell there, be of good courage and hang on for the end. There is a Redeemer God out there that's bigger than the the bigger than our parenting, and is still listening to us as parents. And I hope you'll be paying attention too as we progress through these seven points, that there is still parenting for adult children. And while it differs then from parenting for minors and those that are in the discipling ages, we're not done until our minds are gone or we are dead. All right, number one. The Bible says that probably one of the most deadly things that you have to deal with if you're a parent is ignorance. Could you just help me out a little bit here? I'm going to go so far and you finish the rest. I need five words after I start. Train up a child 
in the way he should go. Now, if you don't know the way he should go, or you somehow think you've got it figured out better than your parents or better than the preachers and the teachers and the policemen, you need to hit the pause button. There is something about God as the source of all wisdom for life and marriage and careers and eternity that should be central to everything we're doing. The Bible says that this inspired source book, the Bible, and since we believe in the spirit of prophecy, which is the testimony of Jesus, we come together with this amazing spotlight of, of God's expose on the development of people, the culture of homes, and we ought not to find ourselves ignorant in an age of information. Up until the eight, mid, middle 1800s, there wasn't the blessed gifts of the Advent home or child guidance or counsels to parents, teachers, and students or Christian education or fundamentals of education. And I can keep going. But these books are ours to get. They are ours to be read. And if you're walking through life ignorant, woe be unto you. Remember, parenting Enter at your own risk. But God's going to hold us all accountable, not just parents, but teachers and preachers. And I'm doing my part this morning to say, make time for what matters most. Because ignorance is an evil that is hard to fully get the weight of. Number two. Oh, one more thing before I go. Um, I, I, I would say this. It's important for us to understand where our priority base is at. And I would just say this, friends. Our children, you get to decide, should be at the prayer meet or the soccer meet. Now, I'm not against soccer. But I'm here to tell you this. There are a lot of kids that were drugged as children. They were drugged to the prayer meeting. They were drugged to the Vespers. They were drugged to the evangelistic meetings. And they turned out all right. That form of drug is okay. But I fear for the ones who weren't there to bond between the generations and also to hear a word from the Lord. You'd be surprised how absorptive these kids' minds are. And even if they got here a little and there a little, hmm, that's sounding like Isaiah, isn't it? Even if they got a little bit for the mosaic here and a little bit for the mosaic here, oh, will they be bored? Yes, they will, especially if they have an iPad the rest of their life. Especially if they have free access to all the stimulating literature that's not true. Especially if you haven't taught them to work and especially if you haven't taught them that people are the most interesting things. But I'm here to tell you, these are things addressed in the scriptures. All right, number two, the fifth commandment. It says, honor your who? Father and your mother. That what? Your days might be long in the land which the Lord thy God has given thee. Now, when we go to teaching somebody new, whether it's pastoring or bricklaying, there's an old adage and it goes like this. You need to learn a way before you learn your way. All right? In other words, you need to be humble enough to learn from the other people who already know what they're doing before you think you've got it all figured out and you show up as the, you know, the cat's meow. This morning, I want to say with great thanks to God that my mother was wise enough to believe that the, the sages of the ages hadn't messed it all up. And while there are imbalances at time. Every generation is trying to correct those without overcorrecting. I want to say that I'm thankful to a mother who understood that her mother and her father, in spite of the mistakes they made, still got a lot of it right. And I do want to add this from the book of James chapter 4 verse 6. All that are actively parenting right now or even all that are just, all that are in that in-between zone. Remember what James said, God resists the proud. Too proud to learn from your parents? God resists you, but he gives grace to the humble. So let's be humble enough to honor those who have gone before us. We didn't arrive at the amazing paragon or epitome of our adult maturity to whatever degree it's developing without the assistance of somebody to get us there. Number three, I want to talk about something that's a little bit dangerous, but not talking about it isn't going to make life less dangerous. The third item I want to talk about, if you want to avoid a tragic comedy, is the right exercise of authority. Now, starting about the 1970s or 80, uh, we got famous on the phrase, question authority. And I think we've questioned it for about four decades now, to the point to where the only authority that's really left is force of government. It doesn't appear there's much moral authority out there unless it's on the side of going against all the authority and morality we used to believe in. But I'm here to tell you, we started questioning the dad's authority. And then we saw homes breaking up and dividing like a pandemic on steroids. 
And then we started seeing children whose lives were raised without proper authority. And I'm here to tell you, in the Bible, I said in the first service, I can't find one example of a parent who is admonished for over-controlling. I had one send me, one of you sent me, thank you, a reminder that Saul, after Jonathan had his great exploit of climbing up the cliff, that he was willing to kill Jonathan because Jonathan violated the don't eat today principle. And while that is a clear exercise of over-authority, it's hard to find in the scriptures a place where somebody's actually admonished for over-authoritizing in the home. Now, if you're an authoritarian, you're messing your home up big time. But if there's no authority in the home, the Bible puts love and grace, truth and law together all the time. When there's not a proper exercise of authority, you have people doing as they will in the ignorant way that leads to generational trauma, which is where we're at right now. Now, I do want to make sure I'm careful in this. I don't think the Bible could ever imagine a home where there's not a lot of love. And in the age in which the scriptures were written, I really believe in that traditional dynamic. There was a lot of protection to the culture of the home, etc. But let's make sure we do this because I know people get out of balance kind of easy. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and let's make sure that Paul recognizes that things can get out of whack. So uh, especially fathers, he's going to write to, you need to be careful. And he's going to write in Ephesians and he's going to write in Colossians. And there are people listening to me right now who need a little check on the dynamics of authority. Authority unproperly used is damaging. Authority properly used is difficult. But it's necessary. And when it's not properly exercised, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So it's important that people who carry authority carry it carefully, but not so carefully that they're tripping over themselves and not exercising it. But it cannot turn into an expression of ego and power. It must be a stewardship that protects the family experience. But even in this verse where there's a caution on wrongly provoking the spirit of the child, there's a reminder they still need to be disciplined and instructed in the Lord. Don't miss that. You can find a similar uh, quotation in Colossians 3.21. But I do want to remind you in this age, which I would call of under-controlled children, and by the way, I love to be in the presence of children who have been properly disciplined and controlled. Uh, I can remember as a parent uh, sitting in a restaurant once, and you know, taking your kids out to eat is almost like an invitation to be embarrassed. And they're flicking peas around, and they're doing things you don't want them to do. And we didn't have a lot of money to do it, so we didn't do it very often anyway. But I can remember, it means a lot to me now, I try to do it when I can do it. You know, when those kids are little and you're really trying to teach them, I can remember a time or two where an older couple, probably my age, came over and said, my, your kids are so well behaved. It's nice to see a family eating out like this. And you know, it's like, really? Wow, you try not to look too surprised at their statement. <laughs> those things mean an awful lot. But what I do want to remind you of is that the Bible has a fair amount to say about discipline. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 19, 18, discipline your son, there's hope. Don't set your heart on putting him to death. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and the reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son, he'll give you rest. Hebrews 12, 7, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom he doesn't discipline? And, and the verse just before it, Proverbs, Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. And we'll go to Proverbs one time. One more time, folly's bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And there are many more. Two things will ruin your children. The Aaron way and the Saul, the unconverted way. You don't have the right balance and you've got problems on your hands, but just know this. If our modern culture was a boat and we were out on the high seas sailing, 
It's not sailing upright with a good balance of discipline and lack of discipline. It's leaning hard over to the indulgence side because our society is sold out religiously to self-expression. It is. And the Bible understands that self-expression has some value for sure, but it is certainly not the guiding dynamic of disciplining children. So, ignorance, dishonor, authoritarianism. Proper authority is good. Number four, child-centered parenting. I'm going to read this to you because I want to keep moving along. 1 Kings 1.5. I'm going to talk to you about David. I'm going to give you three child-centered parents. It's easy to find them in the Bible. I wish it wasn't. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. And then we have this parenthetical comment about him. In between the parentheses in verse 6 of 1 Kings chapter 1, it says, his father had never rebuked him by asking, why did he behave like that? He was also very handsome, which wasn't very good for him, it turns out. And he was also related to another very handsome man whose name was Absalom. Now, David had four kids who died. I'm not going to count the little baby. That uh, is a little different scenario. But I'm going to count the ones who died somewhat as a result of his limited parental involvement in their adult years. I once had a pastor's wife say to me, Pastor Kelly, we'd like for you to do a series on parenting adult children. I'm doing a little bit of it right now. Because each of these three men needed some adult parenting. David must have had a thing for the letter A, a little bit of alliteration in his names, because he had three kids, Adonijah, Amnon, and Absalom. And you know what they all hold in common? They all died as adults through lack of proper engagement through an adult father who should have stepped in and done things a little bit different. But he felt, he felt a sense of shame about his activities with Bathsheba, and he didn't do what he should have done. Let's take one more little thing from David. Get over yourself as a parent. It's not about you if they turn out great, and it's not about you if they turn out terrible. F figure out what the loving and right thing is to do and just do it. And be left with that as an okay. And if you've got to back up and say, I'm sorry for my style, I'm sorry for my limitations, fine. And by the way, that works good for leaders in general. We're so worried today that we'll be critiqued and somebody will say, the way you did that wasn't nice. That we fail to do what's loving, which is the nicest thing anybody could do. And David doesn't step in when Amnon rapes Tamar. And he should have. And Absalom steps in later and takes care of him. And David doesn't step in when Joab is saying, you know, you need to go out there and try to make this work with Absalom. And he doesn't do it. Finally, he does a halfway job and brings him back. And that's a mistake because Absalom tries to do a halfway job and steal the kingdom. And Adonijah, at the end of his life, finds himself murdered, not murdered, executed by his brother Solomon for trying to take the kingdom. If David would have just got back in the game, and if he would have dealt with his adult children a little differently... Maybe it would have turned out a lot differently. If we were to go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, we'd read about two men who've gone down in infamy. Their name is Hophni and Phinehas. They were immoral. They were preachers. They were immoral with other women who worked at the church. All that Eli would do was give a little verbal remonstrance. He didn't step in and remove them. He didn't fix anything. The young boy Samuel has to bear a message that says, look, you honor your kids above me. That's still going on, by the way, friends. When we don't do what God says to do and we aren't who God says we should be, we are honoring our kids ahead of our God. And what God says is, I will honor those who honor me. That's found there in 1 Samuel chapter 2 as well. And lastly, how about Aaron? Aaron has some that are dying. As a matter of fact, the thousands that die at the golden calf, Aaron should have died himself, but God in his grace permits him to live. All right, ignorance, dishonor, authoritarianism, child-centered. How about divided parenting? Take your Bibles and go to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 27. The closest thing that I've found in the scriptures is the story of a mom and a dad who, if they had been working together, might have saved two of their children from a lot of trauma and one of them from what appears to have been a long sojourn with difficulty. Genesis chapter 27, reading from verse 1. When Isaac was old, 
And his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see. He called Esau, his older son, and he said to him, my son. He said, here I am. Isaac said, I'm now old and you don't know the, I don't know the day of my death. Now then go get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country and hunt some wild game for me and prepare for me the kind of tasty food that I like and bring it to me so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, we already know the Bible says Isaac couldn't see well. So it wouldn't be hard for Rebecca to be very close and listening. It would have been better if Isaac would have said, honey, it just seems to me like Esau should get the blessing. And Rebecca could have said, honey, don't you remember when they were babies in my womb and, and they were kicking and struggling? Don't you remember when they came out? And don't you remember what God said? You can't do that. But no, they had separated far enough to where Eli would do his own thing. I mean, Isaac would do his own thing and Rebecca would do her own thing. You know, friends, when the marriage is wounded, the children suffer. Maintaining and blessing and enhancing the marriage is a gift to the kids. And you don't waste time and you don't waste money and you got to be careful who you choose to watch your kids. But I'll tell you what, every investment in the marriage to keep it together is like fertilizing the tree under which the fruit of life is picked and enjoyed and under which the shade from the scorching reality of relational meltdown in this society is going on. And when you can live in an environment where the water of marital love is making a, a verdant and fruitful plain, these are the lucky children. But instead, that's not happening. It's so important that we are united on our children's lives. And you know, my secretary at the last church I was in when my kids were little said, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. And she was a prophetess. And uh, there's a lot to learn in this parenting thing. And I'm thankful for those that have gone before me. And I've tried to honor them by giving a very attentive ear to what they're saying. But one has to wonder what kind of effect it had on these twins. You know, the Bible believes beyond the shadow of a doubt that every woman should do what's right. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, the admonition is live such a dignified life that the man in your life has to take notice. And as a matter of fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, you could win your husband without preaching to him if you live a noble, chaste, and honoring life. But in that little segment in 1 Peter 3, he says, if you want to be a daughter of Sarah, you're going to have to do what's right without being afraid of your husband. Listen, if there's husbands out there right now that are abusing in any way, relationally, physically, emotionally, you need to know in that very same chapter, in those very same verses, God says, listen, I'm done listening to your prayers. Your prayers are hindered when you don't treat the woman, the wife in your life the right way. But he also, God is good about this. He always brings the balance together. And he basically says, look, lady, you've got to know how to stand up to that man. Like Abigail stood up to David. You've got to do it or else he'll turn into something you don't want to be married to. And by the way, he might turn into something the boys don't aspire to be. It's important that our women and our men, our husbands and our wives are together in the raising of these children. Number six, distracted parenting. When I think about this, it's hard to find it in the Bible, so I'm going to take you to the opposite of it. I'll just read this to you as well because we're moving along. Hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments, okay, to love, I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Here we go, the parenting part. Impress them on your children. Of course, the best way to impress them is to live them. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your heads and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. So here's how it works. When you get married, you've made the covenant of commitment that can define love. Inside of that commitment, there's the chance that love might work. When you experience the privileges of marriage without the commitment, you've got a grave aberration on what's going on. Every child deserves to be raised with a mom and a dad. That's why you don't rush to marriage. That's why you get counsel from your parents. That's why you don't ignore your friends. That's why you pray and make sure you don't make an idol out of the person you think you're in love with. You might be and you might not ought to be. But the truth of the matter is, once you have those children, they are your priority. You have entered the university of parenting. 
And you're going to get a degree in parentology. And when you're done, the main thing you would have learned is how different they all are and things you didn't know about yourself. Now, you don't have to be the direct owners of these children, the direct givers of life, to learn these things. I know that teachers and different ones, they may never be in a marriage relationship and they may never have children. Doesn't mean they don't know anything about parenting? Absolutely not. But I will say this, once you do have these little ones, Johnny and Susie running around, it's time to put off the advanced degree and it's time to quit acting like you're a big boy. It's time for you to actually say, I brought these kids into the world, the world's getting darker and harder and to give them a, a launching pad and a foundation for a good life, I gotta be focused on what I'm doing. And so while it's great to express yourself and discover yourself and self-actualize, you have to put that off in many respects not maritally, keep that in there, but you've got to put off, your journey of growing has been marked out for you by your choices and God's great gifts to you. And if we find ourselves distracted, which I don't think the Bible could have imagined, woe be unto us, Jesus warns, it'd be better to have a millstone tied around our neck. You might not need that extra money as bad as you think you do. Find a way to scrimp and scrape, but make sure these heritages from the Lord get the very best you've got to give them. Now, I think there is one potential Bible illustration. Won't take the time to go there, but if you were to go to 1 Kings chapter 12, you get the story of a man whose name, whose dad's name was Solomon. His name was Rehoboam. He turned out to be a fool. He divided the kingdom, could have had it all, but he ignores the advice of the older men. You must think that with a thousand wives and concubines, that probably Solomon in his journey of self-discovery probably wasn't the best dad. And certainly Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, didn't do a very good job at governing. That's what we have, but we gotta move on. The last one, I'm calling it cowardly parenting. Not fearful parenting, because I don't know any parent who hasn't been afraid. I don't know any. And when I look at my own life, there's so many times when it's like, wow, this is what could happen. And now as an almost 60-year-old man, I look back and I evaluate some of the things I've done and I've got to be careful I don't over-introspect or I could tie myself up into a parental pretzel, which won't do any of my adult children any good. But no, I'm calling it cowardly parenting, not fearful parenting, because the difference between a coward and a fearful person is the coward goes ahead and does what's right in the name of love for the sake of the people they care about. When I think about this, I can't find any examples in the Bible, but I can find the examples of people who did the opposite. Let me read this out of the book of Daniel. It says in Daniel 1, 3, 5, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, this is the beginning of the story of Daniel, chief of his court officials, bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family. And there's a whole list of what's supposed to be about them. And I'm going to go down to verse 6, just three verses away from where I just read. And it says, among those who were chosen. Now, do you know whose names were among those who were chosen? The only names of any Israelites recorded in the book of Daniel? From out of his peer group, you have four people, Daniel, Hananiah, Ashael, and Azariah. Mishael and Azariah. You have these four people who you have to know that in the age of declension and debauchery and the challenges of the nation of Israel in its last throes of life before it's absolutely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, there had to be four parents there who were saying, I don't care what they're doing over there. It doesn't matter to me what Judah's mom and dad say. This is what we're doing. And the intentionality with which they raised those children, set them up so that the nation of Israel still had some bright lights burning and the world was not in darkness. Praise God for the parents of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And one more while we're at it, that man you know whose son made it to the pig pen who said dad I don't care if you live or die I don't want to be your adult friend I don't want to hear you talk anymore I don't want to sit at your table I don't want to be around you but I want my inheritance now thank you no thank you and the dad said son wish I could do a little bit more for you sorry living here seems so bad I will give you one-third of the inheritance which is yours of course your brother gets two-thirds as the oldest and maybe someday it'll be different no dad I'm out of here and so from the brothels to the bars to the pig pen, we have a man who one day wakes up. But you don't find this father whose rules were bathed in love and anchored on principle. You don't find him wringing his hands and saying, oh, son, please stay, please stay, please stay. Nope. 
If I have to let you go to get you back, that's what I'm going to do. There's no place for cowardice when it comes to parenting because parenting is about the children. It's not about us. And when we do the right thing in the name of love, bathed in the principles of grace, kindness, and truth, we can end hoping. And that's where I want this sermon to end. Now, how many of you have prayed that prayer? Lord, contend with those who contend with me. You don't have to raise your hand. But how many have prayed that prayer? Lord, contend with those who contend with me and save my children. Oh, I've prayed that prayer over and over again because all of mine aren't living the way I taught them to live. But I want to read the verse to you just before that verse, Isaiah 49, 24. Here's what it says. Can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captains of a tyrant be rescued? The next verse says, Indeed, this is what the Lord says. Even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away, and the prey of a tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your sons. Now listen. When I did that part of my cohort for my graduate degree with the millennials, they were working on their doctorate of reaching the millennials, they said, you know, it used to be that the kids would grow up, some of them would rebel, but they'd come back. And they said, now the data says they're not coming back. Boy, that sobered me. But my immediate thought was they have nothing to come back to. They were never brought to the cross. They were never properly indoctrinated. And by the way, indoctrination is a good word. It is being used against your children, though, to indoctrinate them with a completely different sense of what is moral, what is immoral, what is love, and what is hate. You need to know that's going on. But I want to tell you something. If you think that all of your kids are going to do as you directed them, you need to think again. All of God's kids didn't do as they were directed or out of love what would have honored him. But I do know this. God doesn't give up. And his arm is not short that he cannot save. But I know this, that the prey can be taken from the jaws of the mighty one. And I know God says, indeed, I will rescue them. Now, what our prayer needs to be is this. Lord, help my kids to wake up and see that they're in the jaws of the tyrant. Help them get to the pig pen as fast as possible so they can want out. That guy in the pig pen didn't really know his dad. He thought, well, I can at least go back and be a servant. You could tell he's not been a parent yet. But I will say this. He was on a journey of discovery when he figured out he was caught in the jaws of the tyrant who had destroyed his life and robbed him of his dignity. Now, what we need to know is this. That by the time they know they've been captured by a tyrant, they'll be open to being helped, which means God's not violating the sovereignty or the agency of their own person. And you know, I don't know how to take my kids on some of the journeys they're on now, and you don't know either. But I will tell you this. Since those children were given to you, not the devil, and since those children are God's before they're yours, not the devil, if you care to pray this prayer and take your hands off the steering wheel and say, God, it's yours. I'll trust you. I want them in heaven forever. You know it's a scary ride for me, but you're the Lord. If you're willing to do this, then I've got good news for you. And here's the good news. The good news is, is that Jesus is the son of David. You ever thought about that? And why is he called the son of David? Well, there's lots of good reasons, but none are better than the one I'm about to share with you. And this one's taken from 1 Samuel 17. David said to Saul, don't anybody be afraid of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul said, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight. You're just a boy. And he's been a warrior since he was a boy. And David said to Saul, your servant's been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, and I struck it, and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the hands of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go. 
and the Lord be with you. Friends, this is how it works. If you're willing to take your hands off the steering wheel and quit trying to maintain the relationship at all costs and let the principles of God work, and if it creates a little division and your prodigal's got to leave you or leave home, let it be, but stand for God because you're, doing, you're a stand-in for God to raise this child. But if you care to say, Lord, I tried to raise him for you. I dedicated him to you. I gave them to you. I gave day after day to you. And, and whether this is a fullest spectrum of what you did or not, don't give up. God is gracious. And what you need to say is, Lord, as the son of David, I need you to go rescue my son or my daughter from the jaws of the terrible. And God says, indeed, I can do that. And he finds the devil with your child in his jaws and he says, excuse me, that prey does not belong to you. And he grabs him by the scruff of the neck and he says, drop it. And you know what? Nobody can resist the long arm of God. But if we're not willing to let God take over and take this thing to the place where our kids see they're caught in the jaws of the tyrant, the hater of their eternal life and their happiness here, then we're stuck. But if you don't want to be stuck, friends, I want to tell you something. Contend with those, Lord, who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. And deliver my child from some of his self-chosen addiction. Deliver him, Lord, from placing himself in the jaws of that lion. And the Lord says, indeed, stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. Some won't see it till they see him in the resurrection. Some went to their graves hoping and believing. In the meantime, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly, raise these kids to love God. And most of all, don't make it about yourself and don't give up. And trust God that what's yours in the giving can be yours in eternity if you let the Lord be Lord of everything, including your kids. Amen. Let's stand together. I've chosen a song of praise to end on. Our Lord is working. And if your kids are too young to have defied what you believe in and betrayed what you taught them, praise the Lord. Put these things into practice. But if you're my age, somewhere in that range or older, hang on, friends. It's not done. Jesus wants to bring your children home. Let's just turn it all over to him.